G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 852, my interview with Timothy R. Clark. We're talking about the four stages of psychological safety. Please enjoy. G'day, Tim. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. How are you? Thanks, Lee. Doing great. Appreciate the opportunity to, to be on with you. You're a pretty busy man by the looks of it. Uh, hopefully. I think uh, everyone's if, busy if, these if, days. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully purposefully busy. Well, hopefully. So that means that hopefully we're making a difference in people's lives. Uh, that's that's what I hope we're doing. Is that the goal? That is the goal. Matter of fact, uh, the mission statement that we have for our organization is to influence the world for good at scale. So if we're not doing that, then we need to rethink things. So that that's our express purpose, at least here at Leader Factor. It's a big scope, isn't it? It is. But you know what's differently is that we now have technology that allows us to scale in ways that we never thought possible, even just a few years ago. Hmm. And so even, even if you're a small organization and you have a small footprint, technology allows you to do it, – it allows you to scale and do incredible things that we just, we just weren't able to do before. So that's what makes it exciting. So yours is to influence people for good? The world for good. The world for good? At, at scale. At scale. How do you stay on track with such a mission? Well, I think w- we can measure it in terms of the number of participants that use our platforms. And that's really the way that we're able to scale our, our, our content, our messages, our tools, mm-hmm. the, the ways that we help people. And so we can we actually can quantify that at least uh, in terms of the user base, and and we can uh, we can see that we're having exponential impact as we're able to scale to orders of magnitude that we we didn't even you know we, we weren't even dreaming about or, uh, yeah. just a little while ago. So measuring yeah. the scale, absolutely understand. But how do you know if you're influencing the world for good? Well, that's a little bit harder because mm. you need qualitative data for that, sure. right? So the quantitative data is not going to give you the story, but the qualitative will. And so what we rely on there would be feedback from surveys, but then I think perhaps most importantly, it comes from individual feedback that comes unsolicited when people say, hey, I, I use the, this concept or I use this tool or I applied this skill or I applied this, this framework or tool and this happened. Here was the impact. Here was the result. Here was the outcome. Here was the consequence. And that happens quite frequently. And mm. the, these are instances where people say, you know what, it changed my life or it had some kind of significant impact in my organization or on my team or in some way. And so it's anecdotal in many cases, but you can, you can tell very clearly if the impact is significant, if you're really changing people's lives. Mm. And so we look for that. Absolutely. So just to put it in context, your, your company that you founded, you're the CEO of is lead factor and it's a consulting uh, organization. And you know, I'm supposing you work with um, many different levels of organizations, large and small, to help them transform change, development, leadership in their in their businesses? 
We do. Yeah. So it's it's consulting, but mo- we do a lot of training. We do a lot of assessment using technology online, mm-hmm. and and we do a lot of coaching. And as you say, we we work across industry lines, and we can do that now because of the scalability. Uh, that technology allows. So, for example, we can we can work with multinational corporations, but we can work with small startups, and we're really more and more agnostic about the size of the company. It doesn't matter so much. It used to matter a lot, uh, but it doesn't matter so much because of our scalability, hmm. and that's wonderful. So, we can work in technology in Silicon Valley. We can work in healthcare. We can work in higher education. We can work in government. We can work in heavy manufacturing. And uh, we can play in all of those areas and learn from all of those areas at the same time. So our ability to cross-pollinate is way beyond anything that it was even five years ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And I suppose you can see the ability of you to influence the world for good through those organizations you work with and, and their cultures and teams and performances. We hope so. Mm. Yes, we hope so because cultural culture really is the enabling factor that allows us to do what we want to do in organization. So it's an enabler. It's also an inhibitor. And so hopefully we are helping organizations create cultures that will allow them to reach their mission and goals. Yeah. Great. Excellent. And you've written a fair few books as well, um, including the likes of Epic Change. Um, and you've got a new one, which is called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Um, so I wanted to sort of discuss that book today. But before we get into that, what are some of the key issues, uh, maybe a, a couple, um, that you see organizations facing in today's world? Well, in today's world, what I see, Lee, is I see a very interesting thing where we have millennials that are pouring into the workforce and they have very different expectations. Hmm. And then we have Gen Z on their heels, and they're not too far off, and then they're going to be pouring into, into organizations. And, and so the expectations that these cohorts have are very different than anything that we've seen before. Now, it's not radically different, but it is different because when they're coming into organizations, they want to hit the ground running, and they want to be able to contribute and they are not worried and they're not impressed by title or position or authority. They really don't care about those kind of organizational artifacts that that previous generation cared about so much. Mm. So they want, to, they want to come in, they want to learn and grow, they want to contribute, they want to engage, they want to make a difference. And so if the environment is not conducive to that, then they're really not interested in staying. Mm-hmm. Because the employer, the employer employee compact has already changed. This notion of employee loyalty is very, very different than it used to be. And so, organizations, whether they like it or not, they have to pay very careful attention to the culture that they are offering to the individual employee at this point. And so, that's what has really brought me into this area, this field of of psychological safety over the last three years, because here's what's happening. It's becoming a term of engagement that an, that an organization provide a high level of psychological safety to the employee. Now, let me just back up and define that term. Mm, please. Some of the listeners may not be 
so familiar with the term. The research around psychological safety began in 1991, formally, when a gentleman by the name of William Kahn at Boston University published a paper and coined the, the, the phrase or the term. Mm-hmm. Since then, that research has continued to expand. And the basic definition is that you feel that you can interact in a social unit, in an organization, on a team, whatever it is, you feel that you can interact with others in that social unit without feeling embarrassed or punished or marginalized in some way. That's the basic definition. Hmm. So how does that how does that relate to what I was talking about with millennials coming in? Millennials have an expectation that when they come into the organization, they're going to be working and participating and collaborating in an environment that is high in psychological safety that allows them to do that. If they don't find that to be true, they are much more likely to leave the organization very quickly. Hmm. And okay. so and so what we're finding now, and we're seeing this we're seeing this pattern very strongly in Silicon Valley now. It's coming to the fore. If the organization doesn't provide that environment, that organization will bleed out its top talent hmm. because the talent is not going to stick around. They're going to say, you know what? I, I want to contribute. And I'm, I'm here to make a difference. And if you're not going to provide me the opportunity and foster that kind of work environment, then you know what? I'll go somewhere else. Okay. So we're starting to see that very clearly. Yeah. And is that something that's been around for a while? Or that's more evident nowadays, I guess. I think it's more evident nowadays. Uh, it's, it's, so, for example, Google did their Project Aristotle a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And they studied 180 of their own teams for a couple of years to try and understand what were the patterns of the most effective teams. And they identified five factors. Number one was psychological safety. Mm. So that was just a couple of years ago. So it is a fairly, it, it's not, it's of course not brand new. It's as old as human interaction to be able to want psychological safety. But this increased demand that we're starting to see that's a new thing. That's a new pattern where the demand has become more intense. So what do you think it was missing? Like, why do you think it was less in demand um, 20 years ago, for example, when we were working in organizations, we just didn't have that level of expectation that our psychological needs should be met? No, I don't think we did. We were deeply socialized to accept things that were unacceptable. Think about organization. Think about how in many organizations, we have normalized bullying behavior. Mm. We've normalized harassment. We've normalized public shaming behavior. And, we've, and we accepted it yeah. for years and years and years. And we, we accepted leaders that would push the fear button and rule with fear and intimidation. It was yeah. command and control. It was authoritarian. Mm. That's, not, that's, that's not unusual at all. That's, that's the... That's the history. That's the legacy of most organizations. So we, the just, we just put up tradition. with it because there was lack of options then. Is that sure. the story? Like Absolutely. millennials now are just like, no, this is the way it needs to be. Otherwise, you know, I don't need to be here. Not o- yeah. Not only did we not have options, but we were socialized to accept it. We normalized it. That's what's changing. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's, it's yeah, probably changing very rapidly then, I assume. 
I think it is changing. It's something that I certainly uh, couldn't put up with anymore once I sort of reached my uh, late 20s, I suppose. Right. And I certainly did experience in early organizations I worked for. Right. But I'll give you an example, Lee. So, for example, early in my career, I worked in the steel industry. It was a, it was not something that I had ever anticipated doing. Hmm. I walked into a heavy manufacturing environment. That's one thing. The legacy culture was authoritarian. That's what people knew. It was expensive to say what you really thought. So people didn't do it. If it's emotionally expensive to say what you think, what you feel, what you believe, you're not going to do it. You're going to retreat into a mode of personal risk management. That's what people did for generations because people, they, they managed out of fear, which by the way is, is, is a real cop-out when it comes to leadership because what are you doing? You're hiding behind your authority. Hmm. What a cop. Yeah, yeah. But that's what people, that's what people did. They, they used fear as a proxy for real leadership. So it was, it was an abdication. They weren't really leading. They were just using fear as a substitute because they didn't know how to lead. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. And I saw that, uh, yeah, definitely time and time again, leadership out of fear. And I've certainly um, led from that point too, um, which certainly didn't work for, for my character anyway. Right. So what, what leadership out of fear gets you is it gets you compliance. It does not get you commitment. Hmm. So that's the, <clears throat> that's the phenomenon that I spent really the last three years looking at very quickly. And what I did is I uncovered a consistent pattern that I, I think is universal. It cuts across demographics. It cuts across cultures. It, and the pattern is that we move through this natural progression of four stages yeah. And the, the four stages are, are, are very simple. The first stage is inclusion safety. What does that mean? That means the first thing that people want when they go into an organization or to a team is they want to be included. Yeah. That's number one. Humans long to belong. Yeah. Humans want to be accepted before they want to be heard. It's the, it's, it's the first level. It's their first psychological need is I want to be, I want to connect I want to be accepted. I want to be included. So that's that's the foundation of psychological safety. I want to know that I'm included and that I've been accepted. That's that's stage one. Mm-hmm. If you don't cross over into stage one, you're in a you're in a place of exclusion. And many people actually that's how they feel. They don't feel that they've even crossed over that first threshold to that place of, of being included. So that's really the first order of business. Does everyone on the team feel included? Do they feel a part of things? Do they feel accepted? And I think Stage these, these stages too, while you're talking about it, just to, to put it where my mind is at the moment, is not only in organizational context, but in life in general. Like if you're a part of a group or a, you know, a social group or even at the home, um, that's really, these are important factors. No question. Yeah. So I believe that this pattern is universal and it doesn't matter what social collective you're talking about. Yeah, okay. It could be school. Yeah. It could be home. It could be on an athletic team on which you're, uh, in which you're participating. It doesn't matter the social collective. What we're talking about is an innate, inherent human need. So as soon as I'm introduced to a new social unit, whatever it is, it could be the local rugby team. As, as soon as I'm introduced, what am I worried about? I'm worried about being included hmm. and about being accepted. That's stage one. Then we go to stage two. Stage two is learner safety. 
What does that mean? That means I need to feel safe that I can learn to ask questions, to give and receive feedback, to experiment, to make mistakes, all without the fear of being rejected or embarrassed or humiliated. So that's stage two. So I, I'm, I feel included, but, but can I learn? Now, that's, it's different. So I, in, with stage one, I don't have to do too much. Yeah, I just have to be you. human, yeah. right? I just have to be human. If I possess flesh and blood, I'm hoping that you'll accept, accept me into your society. Yeah. But for, for stage two, to, to learn, I, I, there's a higher level of personal risk and vulnerability because I have to go out and engage in the discovery process and in all of these learning activities. That's a very different thing. So my vulnerability has gone to another level. Right. So I'm hoping that you'll give me a higher level of respect and permission to engage in all of those learning activities. So that's why it's the second stage. It's a higher stage. Yeah. So that, that really relates to both the group and the individual then. It really does. I guess so they let's all think, do really, don't they? They do. Yeah. So let's think about learner safety in the context of, for example, let's go out of the business world. Let's go into education. So think about going to school as a student. Think about all of the, all of the kids that go to school. So learning is not a purely intellectual process. It's an emotional and intellectual process. The two are interwoven. So when humans learn, it's not some cold, dry, mechanistic process. That's yeah. not how it happens. Mm. Although that's learning, the way it seems, doesn't it, from a perspective? Now, hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you, it, sure, it's intellectual, but that's not, that's not how it works. It's, it, so think about, think about this. Here's a statistic that might surprise you, Lee. So in the United States... A high school student drops out of high school every 26 seconds, mm. every 26 seconds. So we have to ask the question, why? Yeah. Why are they doing that? Yeah. Is it because they don't have the intellectual capacity or the mental bandwidth to do the work? That's nonsense. If they don't have a, if they don't have a real, a legitimate learning disability, they can do the work yeah. and they can get the job done. So what's happened? They've lost confidence. How did they lose confidence? They lost confidence because people did not provide the psychological safety, the support in the learning process. So if you, if you have a child that has lost confidence in himself or herself, then what happens is they disengage from the learning process because the emotional and the intellectual are bound up together. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the learner safety has to be there for a student to flourish and, and, and reach their potential. Yeah, yeah. In the absence of that, it's not going to happen. They're not going to do it. Mm. So then we go to the third stage. Sorry, how do you create that, that sort of learner safety? I mean, what's, what's sort of the – because it makes sense theoretically, but how do we yeah. then provide that level of learner safety? Like what's – what can a leader do to oversee that and make sure each of the individuals are, are being given that? Because everyone's going to be learning at different levels and have different emotional levels and all that sort of thing. It's a great, it's a great point, great question. In the book, I, I provide a case study that I think offers some insight into your question, Lee. So uh, I do a profile on a high school teacher here in the States who is a calculus teacher. He's a math teacher. Calcul he teaches calculus. 
which at the high school level is is a very it's a difficult it's a difficult course and not too many students want to tackle that but at his school he's created this unbelievable demand among students to take his calculus course where he has 300 students that want to take his course it's unprecedented hmm. and so we had to ask the question well why well his students are, are flourishing in this calculus course. Why are they flourishing? So I sat down with this gentleman. His name is, is Craig B. Smith. And what I learned, I learned several things, but one important thing that I learned from him is that he, he comes into his classes with a very important assumption. And that assumption is that any student can learn calculus. So what, what most of us do as leaders or managers or teachers or coaches is we go in and we start making judgments about ability and aptitude right off the bat. Mm. He doesn't do that. He suspends that judgment and he assumes that every student can learn calculus. Some may learn slower than others, but he assumes that they can all do it. And mm. I asked him, I said, Mr. Smith, why, why do you assume that? He said, because... I've seen too many academic miracles in my professional life. He said, I've had students that have failed every single test. And then at the end of the year, they pass the national calculus exam. He said, so what I've learned to do is to withhold that judgment. Yeah. And that allows me to interact with the students in a very different way. Mm. I'm all, I always have confidence in them. I never... I never get to the point where I lose confidence in a student regardless of how they're performing. That never happens. Yeah. I never cross over to that place. So what he does is he, he does that. And then number two, the second thing he does is he separates mistakes from failure, from a sense of failure. And what he does is he teaches the students to understand that, that making mistakes is the way forward. This is, this is what you will do. You're going you're gonna to make mistakes, and that's how you're going to learn, and that's how you're going to advance, and that's how you're going to move forward. Hmm. So he disassociates mistakes from a sense of failure. They are not the same thing. Now, in many students' minds, they feel that they are. Well, so you mock us, so, don't you? Yeah. So they get discouraged Hmm. and they think that they're not succeeding. He turns that around completely and he helps the the students understand that not only is that going to happen, that's my expectation Hmm. and it should be your expectation. You're going to make a million mistakes along the way and that's going to be a sign of progress. So here we go. We're going to take this journey together. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the mindset and the paradigm of a person that understands learner safety. Mm. And that uh, removing judgment must be one of the hardest things to do, I suppose, because we're so conditioned to judge. We are. Mm. It's it's a natural instinct. It's an impulse. And I think it's also a moral moral capacity that we have to develop to try and suspend that. Uh, so that we can continue to nurture learning in the people that we're interacting with. Yeah, it's not easy to what do. What do you mean by moral capacity? Well, to to resist the natural tendency and the temptation hmm. to say, you know what, I'm going to classify you in this bucket and I'm going to classify you in right. that bucket. It's It's a very natural tendency to want to do that. 
to classify people the way that I classified butterflies when I was in the fifth grade. That's that's a it's a pretty natural thing that we that we want to classify people yeah. and put them in certain categories. One to one. Uh, I think it's a cognitive shortcut. I think that we do that so that we don't have to keep coming back and making judgments over and over again. To know who we should associate with and who we shouldn't for our sure. own protection. I think the human brain. Yeah, mm. I think the human brain does that naturally. Mm. We come up with categories and we classify all kinds of phenomena based on on categories. Yeah. I think it's a very natural thing to do. And I suppose in the learning environment or learner safety, it's it's really unnecessary. Cause it's that's right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What's um, third stage? Third stage is contributor safety. Hmm. So it's the next natural stage. So think about it this way. So I've learned things. I have skills and knowledge and information that I've learned. So what's what's my natural desire? I want to use it. Yeah. I want to use those things to make a contribution. I want to make a difference based this on what I've learned. This must be a big thing lacking in so many organizations. It is. So contributor safety means that I feel that I can contribute to the value creation process as a full member of the team without, again, without reprisal, without humiliation, without being punished in some way. Hmm. So that's, that's, that's a, again, it corresponds with the next stage of human need to want to contribute, to want to make a difference, to, 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 to want to, to do something that matters. You don't want to learn and then have your, your skills and your abilities just, um, be, be idle, uh, to, to life fallow. That's not what humans want. We want to use what we know, what we've learned, and we want to be able to make a contribution. So that's stage three. Yeah, well, it's about the uh, the self esteem and confidence that you're you're involved in a part of something, and yeah, level of self importance, I suppose. It is, and you can't really develop that until you're given the opportunity to get out there and make a contribution. Hmm. If we think about sports, so I'm sure that many of your listeners have participated in all kinds of sports and athletics. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever been on a team, but you didn't get to play in the game, you had to what we call sit the bench. Hmm. Well, no one wants to sit the bench. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, one day the coach comes to you, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, get out there. And in an instant, you move to contributor safety because now you're out there and you're contributing and you're able to participate as a member of the team. Yeah. You'll never get to the level of confidence and that sense of self-efficacy that you need to reach your potential unless you're given the permission and the ability to go make that contribution. You can't do it sitting on the bench. You can't do it uh, just just learning and being told what to do. You can't learn it by reading books. you got to get out there and make it happen. Yeah, sure. That's contributor safety, and that's what people want to do. Yeah. So that's stage three. I reckon I would have been one of those kids that said, no, nah, I'd, I'd just rather stay on the bench. <laughs> and I certainly didn't uh, get involved in the, the sporting arena at all. Well, it's it's not limited to sports. It's anything. Yeah. It could be music. It could be the performing arts. It could be working with technology. It could be 
in any craft or trade. It doesn't matter what the field of endeavor is. That's irrelevant. It's the fact that whatever you're involved with, whatever, whatever the activity is, you want to be able to participate as a full member of the team. You don't want to sit on the sidelines. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's whatever the field of endeavor yeah. is, whatever the activity is. With, you the, want to, with, with this, I mean, I, I suppose you talk about the emotional state of the individual. If, that's, if someone's got a really high emotional IQ or a highly emotional person, are they less likely to, to be involved or is, they, is it harder for them to, to go through each of these stages? Have you seen a correlation there? I think it is for some people. I think that they bring more inhibition to these act, to whatever activity we're talking about. Hmm. And there's so they are more timid. They're more skittish. They are they're not self-assured. They're more insecure for a variety of reasons. And so they're going to, it's, it's going to be more difficult for them to, to, to jump in and contribute, but there's no other way. There's no back door. There's no shortcut mm. to gaining confidence. Co- confidence is something that you drip feed. No one can give you an infusion, this, this immediate, uh, infusion of confidence. Yeah. It, there's, it, it only works one way and that is little by little, it's an incremental process and there's, there's no shortcut for it. So confidence that uh, comes in experience. Um, right. So that, I mean, I've seen it in organizations where some people, um, brilliant as they are, are less likely to, to just get involved and get out there and get amongst it and be vulnerable and all that. Whereas others, um, you know, don't really give a rubbish. They just get in and do what they do and feel however they feel. So that brings up the point, Lee, you make a very good point. That is, so then the leader needs to be paying very close attention to group dynamics. Hmm. So who jumps in, who doesn't jump in, who, who sits on the sideline, who holds back because they may not be confident in a social setting. So the, the leader that's paying attention is going to be, is going to see these group dynamics and then and then after the meeting or the collaborative session or after we're together as a team, that leader is going to go back and spend some time with that individual one-on-one to draw him or her out. Some of the, some of the most brilliant people that I've ever met, they don't say anything in a meeting. Hmm. They're not comfortable in a social setting like that hmm. for whatever reason, maybe Maybe it just gives them anxiety. Who knows? Uh, there are all kinds of reasons, but yeah. the savvy, tuned-in, attentive leader is 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 going to to pay attention to that. Is going to to see that, and then is going to compensate for that to help draw out that individual so that he or she can perform at the at their highest level of potential. That's what leaders do. Right. Hmm. Um, what if you have an interpersonally clumsy individual? What if you have a socially awkward individual? What if you have a, a person that is not confident in social settings, doesn't like them, does not want to engage that way? Well, does that mean that person can't engage? I hope not. Hmm. You've got to. We've got to give that individual other opportunities to shine and flourish. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a teacher, 
if you're a coach, if you're a manager, what, what about in a family situation? What, what if you have a child that is deeply introverted and, and just doesn't like to engage with others uh, around the table hmm. in the same way? And so prefers a different different set of 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 uh, terms of engagement, really. Yeah. yeah. So how how are you going to compensate for that? How are you going to meet that child, or that student, or that employee where he or she is? That's the role of a that's the role of a leader hmm. to analyze the individual disposition and temperament <coughs> of each person. Yeah. Yeah. So that's stage three. Now, then we go to stage four. Stage four is fascinating. Stage four psychological safety is what we call challenger safety. This is the culminating or ultimate stage of psychological safety. This is where we feel free and able to challenge the status quo, to look around and say, you know what? I think we can make things better. Hmm. I think we can do things differently. And I have an idea or a suggestion about how to do that. And I'm going to put it on the table. The reason that this, is, this requires the highest level of psychological safety is because it represents the highest level of personal risk and vulnerability. Mm. Now, think about, think about what we're, what we're oh, saying. Huge. We're saying yeah. you, you come to a social unit, whatever it is, a company, uh, a school, a family, a team, whatever the social unit is, and you're going to challenge the way we do things? Well... That's not an easy thing to do. No. So what you need is you need, you need respect and permission at the highest possible level. Hmm. And if you don't have it, you're not going to stick your, stick your neck out. If you don't have it, you're going to retreat into personal risk management, pain avoidance, right? Uh, well, of course you are. Hmm. You would be foolish not to. So it, that's what, it, it comes with a, a bit of a, a power thing, doesn't it? Look, when you challenge um, the way things are done, I've certainly run into that many times, and I think it's probably why I didn't fit too well in a lot of organisations is because of that constant need to challenge how things are done and then question certain things. Um, you know, with my own ideas of trying to improve, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, people just not wanting to accept it. That's right. And, and why don't they want to accept it? Because they benefit from the status quo. So in most organizations, the current distribution of power, the current incentive structure, is, it's based on the way we do things today. And mm. So they don't, they don't want that to be disrupted. And yet it needs to be disrupted because in, in our world, in dynamic environments, we need to be able to adapt and adjust. Mm. And so, really, challenger safety is a license to innovate. Yeah, it's all about progression. Right. So the the question that leaders have to ask themselves is: Do I foster challenger safety, that highest level of psychological safety? Do I allow people to challenge the status quo? Do I allow them to challenge me? So, uh, so how do we know? Well. Here's, here's a big indicator, Lee, that we have found in the research. The number one signal that people look for to, to know if they can challenge the status quo is the leader's emotional reaction to dissent. 
So how does that leader react when someone challenges things? Right. When when someone asks a probing question, when someone puts a suggestion or idea on the table, how, how does that person react? If that person if that, if that person's emotional reaction is not accommodating of the challenge, we all get it. Hmm. That that leader's sending out signals to all of us, and that signal might say, you know what, it's not okay to challenge the status quo. Okay, we get it. And so then most people except the the supremely brave are not going to challenge the status quo. Yeah. But if the leader accommodates that challenge, if his or her emotional response is one of poise and uh, and comfort, you know, there's a comfort level with it, then we all get that too. And so then that leader, what is that leader doing? That leader is creating an ecosystem that invites that bravery. Hmm. And, and, and we all get it because there's a norm. There's a, there's a signal that goes out to the organization that says, you know what? I'm inviting you to challenge the status quo. We actually accept that around here. Hmm. We tolerate that around here. Hmm. And people, when, when that happens, people get pretty excited about that and they start to weigh in. And then we're able to unleash organizations at a much higher level. Hmm. But unfortunately, most leaders don't consistently demonstrate the ability to foster challenger safety. So that's something that they need to think about. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it um, has the possibility of opening the floodgates of too much? Well, it has to be managed. And so... uh, you're you're hitting on a really interesting point because we can't go to chaos, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to manage we have to manage the order of the organization, and we have to hold people accountable. So the accountability never goes away. It's not a free for all. Everybody's accountable, but so in 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 a very agile and psychologically safe organization, we would see a pattern where people hold themselves accountable and they hold each other accountable. But there's always an invitation to challenge the status quo. And, and we're going to debate issues on their merits. We're going to have hard-hitting dialogue. Because how do things get better? The only way things get better is through constructive dissent, hmm. through creative abrasion. We need ideas rubbing against each other. We actually need them colliding. Hmm. And so we need a culture that accommodates that. Yeah. So I, I feel oh, that a lot of organizations must be missing because, I mean, I think the time and the energy that it takes to, to manage that process is quite intensive, you know, to, and, and that's what, what's needed. Um, but a lot of organizations now that are, are cost-driven and profit-driven perhaps don't allow management to do that. Do you think that's a, an issue as well? I do. I think that's often the case. And so I think that the the leaders of organizations have to do a good job in saying, you know what? We can't do everything at once. We understand that. We have to make trade-offs. We have to allocate scarce resources. And so we we will always we'll listen to your ideas and your challenges, but these are the things that we're looking at today. These are the priorities. So please help us with this stuff. 
We have to make trade-offs. So we're, we're, we're really not going to worry about all this other stuff right now. So I think hmm. that's where leadership provides guidance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't be a free-for-all, right? We can't have chaos. Hmm. We're, we're trying to compete in the most unforgiving, hyper-competitive, dynamic environments that we have ever seen in the history of the world. And so we've got to, we, we, we have to, we have to bring some order to this. And so I think that if people on the team realize that the leaders are always acting in good faith and that they don't feel personally defensive and have a desire to defend that status quo, people understand that you can't do everything at once. They get that. Yeah. And so I think they're going to accommodate that. I think they're going to work with you. I think they're going to cooperate yes, well, if you take that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'd absolutely love it. It's um, yeah, quite an interesting conversation and a fair bit to take out, really. Um, the book is launching early next year. Is that correct? March 3rd will be publication date, yeah. March 3rd. So I'll, I'll attempt to stick a link in it as of the release date of this podcast. And uh, for you guys listening out there, please jump on to thehiddenwide.com and check out the show notes. It's episode 851, I think. No, 852 um, with Tim Clark or Timothy R. Clark. Um, so you can search that up and check out the show notes there. Tim, how can people best uh, find you? Is it just through uh, Lead Factor? Leader Factor? Yeah, they can, yeah, they can go to leaderfactor.com mm-hmm. and uh, come and visit our site anytime and um, send us an email. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to hear from, from any of you if you have an interest. That'd be awesome. Yeah, guys, check him out and um, reach out and certainly uh, connect. I'm sure that he can help out in, in many different ways. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for coming on. Any final thoughts? Lee, thank, thanks very much. Um, I think uh, the last thing that I would say is just a suggestion to everyone in any kind of a formal or informal leadership position, lead as if you have no power. I think if you think of it that way, that it will help you in your overall effectiveness as a leader, regardless of your role. So that would be my parting thought to you. And there is no other way, really, in this day and age, by the sounds of it, because millennials and, and the generation, what do you say, Gen Z, are uh-huh. coming through. And um, if you led with power, they just, they, they'll go, they'll walk. Yeah, they're not very impressed by that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. I love it. Okay, mate, thank you for coming on. And guys, check it out at thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Manutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.